This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and guests about politics. It's Thursday, September 12th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. One of the big stories of the 2016 presidential election was the rupture within the Republican Party. Never-Trump traditionalists lost their fight to prevent the nomination of Donald Trump, but they haven't gone away. They still strenuously object to his scorched-earth style and many of his policies. The rift between this anti-Trump faction and Trump's defenders can be clearly seen in an ongoing debate between David French of the National Review, who regards President Trump as a threat to the future of democracy, and Sorab Amari, the op-ed editor of the New York Post, who cheers Trump's politics. This summer, Amari published an essay called Against David Frenchism, and last week, French and Amari met in a debate at Catholic University in Washington. One issue that particularly bothered Amari was French's unwillingness to label the convening of drag queen story hours at local libraries as a cultural crisis. French, who is a constitutional lawyer, replied, I do not recognize Drag Queen Story Hour as a cultural crisis of great import in the United States of America. We have a nation of 320 million people. It is a free nation. Throughout the course of our history, we have had cults here and there, polyamorous communities here and there. People are doing bad things that I disagree with. It is a byproduct of a free nation. These are choices people make in a free nation. Ben Wallace-Wells, a New Yorker staff writer, joins me to discuss the broad doctrinal splits among conservatives and what they mean for the future of the Republican Party. Ben, welcome back to the podcast. It's nice to be on with you. That exchange we just heard between the two of them could be seen as a, a tempest in a teapot to basically two urbane conservatives thrashing out their differences. Most of us have never heard of Amari in French, <laughs> yeah. but you argue that their differences reflect something much more significant. Maybe just to start off, tell us, who is David French? David French is, as you said, a writer for National Review, 50 years old. In his past, he's been a uh, constitutional lawyer. He won a volunteer to go to Iraq in his late 30s and won a bronze star while there. He's an evangelical Christian. And at the outset of the kind of intravarsity hostilities of 2016, um, he was a, you know, a kind of prominent, relatively establishment conservative writer. But during 2016, he became maybe the most resolute and fully theorized um, opponent of Trump among conservative intellectuals, uh, so much so that by May of 2016, you know, a few weeks before the Republican convention, he was very publicly recruited to run for president to mount a kind of last ditch challenge to Trump by Bill Kristol, the conservative impresario and founder of the Weekly Standard, but also by a number of other prominent Republican operatives and donors. And so, you know, in the course of those events, and in the kind of staunch, never Trump line that he has maintained since, he became a, a the kind of embodiment of the conservative intellectual establishment 
that would never get on board uh, with with the president. French told you that he was momentarily tempted by, by the idea to run and by the idea of building a movement which he described as, you know, being on the backbone of idealistic young evangelicals who had a vision for racial reconciliation, for pluralism, and for partisan reconciliation. Yeah, I, I, I found that I found that very moving. Actually, you know, that whole never Trump faction, you know, is often described as sort of a, a kind of Washington, you know, lawyerly kind of elite phenomenon. And in many ways it is. French's imagination of his own role was as somebody who would yeah, lead a kind of brigade of young evangelicals who said, this man is, is totally against everything we believe and stand for. French himself is a member of a, a biracial family. He has an adopted daughter from Ethiopia, for which he got an incredible amount of flack uh, from members of the alt-right during the campaign. And so that message of cross-racial reconciliation, you know, kind of religiously inspired uh, pluralism, uh, I think that's very close to his heart. So who is influenced by French's ideas nowadays? It's interesting that the Republicans, if we set aside intellectual conservatives for a second and think about Republicans in power, I think it's a pretty confused group at this point. You know, there are some Republicans who believe in their heart of hearts that Donald Trump or something like him represents the future of the party. But there are a great number of Republicans, I think a, a far larger number, who either are not sure or are actively repulsed by him, though they don't see it in their political advantage to to kind of get on board. You know, during this fight with Sarab Amari, David French had people like, you know, staffers for Orrin Hatch and, and, and other senators um, talking about how much his own thinking had influenced theirs. So I think for members of the conservative uh, establishment that is openly anti-Trump, and for those kind of closeted members of the Trump resistance, who, who are experimenting with critical thoughts about the president and who would like something else to be the future of the party. And yet we are, you know, I just continue to be astonished by Trump's near total takeover of the Republican Party. So we saw more evidence of it yes, just yesterday when Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, formerly a principled anti-Trumper, voted in favor of Trump's diversion of money from the military to his border wall. And Sass refused openly to vote for Trump in 2016. He was applauded yeah. for that. But now he says he'll support Trump in 2020. So in some ways, it feels as though French has already lost the battle. Yeah. And, and I think is in danger of losing the war. I mean, you know, I, I think that um, we have a contrast this week in, in the United Kingdom, where we see a kind of a pretty open rebellion from within the Conservative Party uh, at a similarly populist figure uh, in Boris Johnson. But yeah, among Republican politicians, uh, my sense from talking to them is that very few of them see a clear way through to their voters um, that goes around Trump. I think there is a general sense that the old system, the system that gave us, you know, Mitt Romney, uh, and Paul Ryan, that was focused on, you know, uh, uh, kind of free market conservatism, that that model of reaching, uh, reaching voters is not something that they as politicians can really return to. And even Reaganism, which formerly has been just the absolute bedrock of the party. Yeah. yeah I mean, one thing that, that is fascinating about this intellectual debate and then about the conservative challenges um, to sort of the old style the old system generally, is how directly they take on 
what they call fusionism. Um, and so fusionism is, is just a way of saying the union between social conservatives and, you know, free market ideas, kind of libertarian economics. That's really defined the Republican Party uh, for 40 years now um, and has roots going back further. And what Amari represents is the faction of, of social conservatives who feel like um, they and the voters who, uh, who they stand for have not gotten anything like their fair share out of that union, um, that the Republican Party, though it you know, depended upon the votes of committed anti-abortionists and um, people who believe that, that the traditional family was under attack, and though it inflamed those uh, worries among those voters, you know, every time it was time for there to be an election, really when it came down to sort of legislative action, what the Republican Party of the last few decades has mostly cared about is returning money to the wealthy. And so I think part of what Amari stands for is a, a feeling that, that social conservatives in this union with economic libertarians have been sold down the river. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about his background. He himself has very quickly changed his politics. He, he supported Hillary Clinton for president in 2016 yeah. and opposed Brexit. So yeah. what caused him to swing so far to the right? Yeah, so, so Saurabh Amari is, is an Iranian immigrant. He comes from, by his own description, a kind of bohemian family uh, in Tehran. He emigrated with his mother, to uh, Utah, Logan, Utah, of all places, uh, when he was 13 years old. He's 34 now. He made his early career at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he was a hawk on Iran policy. He wrote for their uh, editorial page. Uh, he also, yeah, like took a basically, you know, classically liberal line. Amari himself underwent a, a, a conversion. He became a Catholic at the end of 2016. And in the course of Doing that, it seems like that conversion gave him a language for social conservatism that he had not had before. He became a much more staunch social conservative. Amari spoke to you about a generation of young conservatives, uh, as he put it, that is trying to kill off some of the older generation's ideas. I mean, his yeah. style, uh, as well as the content of what he says, could not be more different from uh, French's. It, this sounds incredibly grandiose. How much truth is there to his claims that an historic break is underway? Yeah, I mean, Amar is just a, a sort of uh, an impish, um, sort of impious guy. Um, I don't know that there's much truth to it in a kind of broad generational sense, uh, in terms of if you look at like the body of Republican voters. Uh, I don't know that there's a like big turn towards um, pro-Trump or doctrinaire social conservative politics. But I do think that there is a significant cadre of young conservative intellectuals like him, you know, who came up and looked at Romneyism and Ryanism and sort of the last aspects, the last expressions of kind of Reaganite fusionist politics and said, this isn't working. You know, it's not winning presidential elections. It's not delivering the kind of country we want. It's not you know, an adequate defense against the secularization of the public square. And then look at Trump and say, you know, I may not be totally comfortable with everything that's going on here, but there's something that's working. There's a there's an imagination of a party that isn't just for billionaires. There's a, um, a possibility of a more uh, sort of staunch politics. 
This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus, but somehow that's that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There is one Republican who embodies this new conservatism, and that's 39-year-old Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, who won Claire McCaskill's seat in 2018. And I believe Mitch McConnell and others see him as a real beacon for the party's future. Hawley is fascinating. I mean, he he was one of the, you know, the top recruits for the Republican Party last cycle. They very he was the Attorney General of Missouri. He has an impeccable re- resume, um, a Rhodes Scholar, uh, I think Stanford Law, and 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 the Republican establishment really wanted him to run uh, for Senate. Um, and what they got once he did was somebody with maybe a, a slightly different, a slightly uh, more divergent uh, kind of policy approach than than they had imagined. You know, his major um, policy initiative has been to go after Silicon Valley and rhetorically to suggest that what the Republican Party needs to do is kind of break itself off from the billionaires and what he calls the cosmopolitanism, you know, citing Martha Nussbaum um, of the Democratic Party and fight for the heartland as sort of a cultural uh, bulwark. And and use the federal government to blunt the force of big tech. That's exactly right. I mean, the vision of, of how the government should interfere in daily life is, is just much less constrained by a deference to the free market um, than it would have been in Mitt Romney's Republican Party or even Mitch McConnell's. So French told you that the reason our politics are so poisonous is that both sides think they're losing. And Amari sees secular liberalism everywhere he looks. But French points out that, that liberalism has been, has been taking a real beating with Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh on the court yeah. and the pro-life forces newly energized to overturn Roe v. Wade. So what are conservatives really worried about? One very basic difference here is Amari lives in New York and uh, uh, French lives outside of Nashville. And I think that, that, you know, if you live in New York, if you live in California, you would say, I think not unreasonably, the daily culture of life is getting more progressive. Uh, The way America is expressed on television, on the internet, includes a much more diverse array of faces, um, of lifestyles, um, of uh, gender identities, than it would have, you know, even five or six years ago, even at the end, even at the end of the Obama years. If you are thinking not about power politics narrowly, not in terms of who is winning elections and who holds electoral power, but in terms of what our culture looks like, you know, I, I don't think it's totally crazy to say um, this country seems to be getting pretty rapidly much more progressive, and I think that's that's especially true if your focus is on gender and sexual identity and, and traditionalism. Despite the rise that, of Fox News and, and the rest? Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 think, I think so. Um, I think on the other hand, this is both what, what French is suggesting and I think what, what you're kind of driving at. Look, like this is a conservative era in politics. Um, and though, you know, Fox News and though Donald Trump have built their 
politics and their audience in many ways on a sense of, of cultural persecution, it's also true that they have been able to use that sense of marginalization to win an incredible accumulation of power. And so I think that like one thing that, that French is um, analytically correct and also kind of interesting about is just his pointing out like, we haven't lost, you know, as conservatives, like, like conservatives have not lost clout in this country. This isn't a country that, you know, you would look at from a historical perspective and say, this is a, a kind of unboundedly secular era, an unboundedly progressive um, direction. And he would point, yeah, to, to Gorsuch and Kavanaugh also too, as you point out, like the, the just spate of very, very restrictive anti-abortion laws that are being passed across the South and say, you know, what are you talking about? What kind of country are you seeing? This is this is sort of crazy. So Democrats are, are in a state of high anxiety about the 2020 <laughs> election. I think that's fair to say. What yes. do French and Amari have to say about Trump's strengths and weaknesses as uh, over the next year and, and also about post-Trump conservatism? I think in some ways what they're really both doing is talking about post-Trump conservatism. I don't think either of them has a great deal of hope that they can influence what form Trumpism takes. I think both of them would say that Donald Trump is his own ball of chaos. You know? and, and do they see him as, as vulnerable in 2020? I don't think they see him as a necessarily strong or enduring uh, figure. I don't think they think that Trumpism um, is sort of likely to be uh, by default without, you know, without further fights, uh, the way conservatives see themselves, the way they orient themselves in, in the future. And I think what, what the fight is about um, is what form conservatism will take in the future, whether it can still be, you know, as David French would like, uh, a kind of ideology that is um, deferential, that, that prefers limited government, that like is focused on the free market, but is also focused on respecting the, the, the rights of minorities, um, or whether it becomes something like Saurabh Amari would prefer, that is more attentive to the possibility of cultural emergency and uses a more forceful form of government to uh, try to reorder society. Thank you so much, Ben. <laughs> sure. Thank you. Ben Wallace-Wells is a staff writer at The New Yorker. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program was produced by Alex Barron and Kylie Warner for newyorker.com. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.